I'm Sean McCormick, and this is Optimal Performance. I'm going to give you the top 10 foods from a nutrient density perspective. You can basically assume <laughs> you're nutrient deficient, but I can no longer ignore what I'm seeing in my clinic where almost every patient that comes in, even one, people who are, who are doing the right things and following a healthy diet are still nutrient deficient and often several deficiencies. The role of fiber is not to feed us. Right. We don't digest fiber. It doesn't give us any nutritional value at whatsoever. What fiber is, is like the best nutrient for our uh, microbiota, you know, microbiome. Oh, I hope you're ready for today's episode. It is an awesome, awesome interview with Chris Kresser. He's a globally renowned expert, clinician, educator in the fields of functional medicine and ancestral health. He's a New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Cure and Unconventional Medicine. He's been on Dr. Mark Hyman and Rob Wolf. He's been on Rogan. Just the guy knows his stuff. And he's also recently launched a line of vitamins and supplements called Adapt Naturals. Now, this is the kind of guy that you want making your stacks. And uh, he lays it out later in the episode, but we cover a lot of cool topics. We talk about the 10 most nutrient-dense foods. We talk about the fact that everyone, literally everyone is nutrient deficient, and there's a lot of reasons because of it. We talk about why fruits and veggies are so depleted of nutrients, and we talk about Chris's mission to help the world with their nutrient deficiencies. So he gets to both create content and as a clinician is helping people every single day figure out their optimal performance, their optimal health. And a lot of it comes from the fact that we just don't have the nutrients that we need to be our best. Super cool episode. Thank you so much for joining me again on another podcast episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. Uh, I love you so much. Happy holidays, everybody. Uh, you can always find me at Instagram at McCormick. And uh, if you haven't yet, if you're feeling giving these holidays, jump on wherever you listen to this episode and uh, drop me a five-star with a little bit of review. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Chris Kresser. And I'm here with Chris Kresser, functional medicine clinician, educator, author. I'm a fan of his work. Chris, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Sean, pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. I like to start with a nice big punchy nugget of wisdom and we're going to dance around a whole bunch of different other topics but in your understanding can you give me what you think are some of the most nutrient dense foods that we can eat yeah i'd be happy to and there's a great study that was just published on this earlier this year by uh ty beal and colleagues and uh, he works for an NGO that's concerned with ending malnutrition around the world. So he really wanted to answer the question, where can we get the biggest bang for our buck in terms of uh, the foods that are lowest in calories and highest in nutrients? That's the, really the definition of nutrient density. And it's not mm. because we're necessarily concerned about too many calories, especially in the developing world, but it's, it's more like how do you how do you get the biggest return on investment? You know, in in terms of the foods that you're putting into your mouth, you want to maximize the nutrient density of those of your foods. So, um, they published a paper, and I'm going to give you the top ten foods from a nutrient density perspective. So the first one is liver, and you know some people who've been paying attention to the nutrition world won't be surprised about this, uh, and it's first by a long shot. So on this scale a lower score is better because it, it indicates the number of calories of that food you would have to eat to meet the basic nutrient threshold that they established. So for liver, it was 11. The next closest wow. food was another organ meat, 
and that was spleen. And spleen. that was six <laughs> spleen, you know, and I'm going to go out on a limb and, and, and guess that not too many people listening to this podcast are eating spleen very often. So, uh, but you asked, this is the list. Yes. I, I didn't make it up. Uh, so 62. So that's, you know, a ways down still from, from liver. The third uh, food was small dried fish and, and, and dried means probably more concentration of nutrients, you know, because like anchovies, sardines, whatever, are already very nutrient dense. But then when you dry them, it concentrates the nutrients even further. I was 65. Uh, for the vegetable fans out there, this is the first appearance of vegetables is number four, that's dark leafy greens. So this is your collard greens, your kale, chard, spinach, etc. That's 72. Uh, next on the list is bivalves. So those are things like oysters, well, um, which are super nutrient dense. That's uh, 90. And then next is kidney, 125, heart, 163, crustaceans uh, like shrimp, 193, goat, 205, beef, 275, eggs, 281, and cow milk, 287. Wow. Okay. So, let's, let's, yeah, give me some questions because I yeah. imagine there's some surprises there for you and probably a lot of people listening. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not surprised that organ meats are comprised, what, three or four of the top 10. That's, that's It's actually uh, so liver, spleen, kidney, heart. Uh, yeah, four of the top 10. Wow. So that that's not necessarily surprising to me. And I don't think it's going to be surprised, surprising to the listeners either. The, the other question that I have is around the leafy greens. And do you think that it's fair to lump in all leafy greens? Like is kale and chard or collard greens? Like, is it, that's a pretty broad brush there. Do you think that that's, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think they're roughly comparable as a category, just like any other category. So um, one of the other ones was vitamin A rich fruits and vegetables. That's obviously very broad too. So you have carrots, you have red peppers, you have these, these vegetables, which are going to differ in their various nutrient profiles. But I should be clear that the nutrients that were studied here were vitamin A, folate, B12, calcium, iron, and zinc. So Hmm. Um, the, the reason for that is that those are the nutrients of the greatest concern around the world, particularly in women of childbearing age. Uh, these are the nutrients that are most frequently, def uh, that, that population is most frequently deficient in, and they're also the ones that can cause the biggest issues uh, in terms of reproductive ability and, and fitness and health uh, for women of, of that age. So what wasn't measured was like phytonutrients, like carotenoids or bioflavonoids or things like that. They were really focusing on the essential nutrients that we know are most problematic. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little surprised that magnesium wasn't included in the nutrients measured. And, and I, I'm going out on a limb here, not being an expert, but uh, is, is it possible that there is maybe greater soil uh, uh, nutrient density in developing worlds than there is from like the Western American diet where all the food that we eat is nutrient depleted and the soil is depleted. I would think that magnesium would be one of those that they measured and it's not. Yeah, I think in, in part it's, it's like, it's a very high consequence if you're deficient in, in magnesium, but maybe not quite 
the same as iron or, or zinc from a reproductive, you know, for that particular population. Um, you know, if you are iron deficient and you're, you're a female trying to get pregnant and, and reproduce, that's going to be extremely difficult, you know, because iron, without enough iron, you're not getting enough oxygen to the cells and tissues of your body. And every single cell in, in the body needs both oxygen and glucose to function. And so it's, it's, it's a real game changer in that respect. And there's still, you know, over 2 billion people in the world are suffering from iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. I think another issue, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned magnesium because it's one of the nutrients I talk about that, that illustrates some of the problems with the way that we measure nutrient status and the statistics that are thrown around about nutrient deficiency. So um, the RDA or recommended dietary allowance is, uh, you know, the, it was originally developed during World, uh, World War II as a way of measuring like what kind of rations we should give, we should, we should provide soldiers. So it was never the amount that was designed for optimal health. It was the amount that was, would keep our soldiers alive basically as they mm -hmm. were fighting in the war. Um, and there are several problems with the RDA. One of them is that it's based on body weight. And as you can imagine, average body weights in the U S have risen precipitously in the past 30 years. So for example, um, in, 1997, which is when the, the, the last time that the RDA was updated for magnesium, the average body weight was 133 pounds for adult women and 166 pounds for adult men. Now, in, in 2021, researchers published a study arguing, hey, we need to update the RDA for magnesium because the average body weights have risen dramatically. So today the average body weight for a female is 169 pounds. That's more than it was for a male in 1997. And for men, it's 196 pounds. And so the RDA for magnesium, um, which is based on that old body weight, uh, from 1997 is 420 milligrams for males and 320 gram, uh, milligrams for females. When, when the researchers went in and recalculated the RDA based on the new actual body weights uh, from today, they came up with a revised RDA of uh, about 530 milligrams per day for women. So that's an increase of over 200 milligrams a day and then about 650 milligrams per day for men. So that's an increase of 230 milligrams per day. Mm. But no one knows this. This no is like that. buried in the scientific literature, right? And yeah. if, if someone goes out and does a study and, and like how many, you know, how many people are meeting the RDA for magnesium, they're going to use that old RDA from 1997 because it still hasn't been updated and that's what's published. And even with that, even with that RDA that hasn't been updated, the vast majority of Americans are falling short. So the average intake of magnesium for US adults is about 340 milligrams per day for men and 250 milligrams per day for women. So most people are falling short of even that old outdated RDA and they're falling 
hundreds of milligrams short of what the actual RDA should be now based on body weight. And that RDA is still not necessarily the amount for optimal health. It's just, right. the, you know, it, it's, it's the sort of basic level that's going to, you know, it's, it's going to prevent the most serious consequences, but it's not necessarily going to lead to, you know, longevity and reduction in chronic disease and lifelong health, which is what all of us are, are aiming for, you know, yeah. like we're not just, I don't, I mean, I'm going to, again, yes. I'm going to get, I'm going to guess that you don't just want to avoid scurvy and rickets. <laughs> like you, you're setting your, your sights a little bit higher than I don't want to get Barry Berry or pellagra or some, you know, full blown, uh, disease, irreversible disease that's caused by, you know, clinical nutrient deficiency. You, you want to live a long, healthy life, feel good, watch your grandkids grow up, you know, be sharp and clear in your mind until the day you die like that. That's what we want. The level of nutrients required for that is way higher than the RDA in most cases. Let's stick with magnesium for a, a little minute. Where are most people getting their nutritional uh, magnesium? The top sources for magnesium are, are leafy green vegetables. So going back to that nutrient density scale, sea vegetables, which, uh, you know, in this, in the U S definitely not many people are, are eating them, but around the world, that's that in some parts, that's a significant source seeds like pumpkin seeds and chia seeds. Again, average American, not so much, not consuming that, uh, spices like coriander and chives, um, cacao and chocolate, dark chocolate's actually a really good source of magnesium and then nuts like almonds and cashews. So mm. as you can see, you know, those are foods that maybe someone that's on a healthy diet are, are, is eating fairly regularly, but someone on a standard American diet is eating almost none of those foods on a regular basis. Mm. Okay. Now I want to go back to liver, uh, partly because, uh, I think most of the listeners are familiar with uh, the importance of, of organ meat. We've covered it in other episodes, you know, for the, for the people who are, who are really paying attention, you know, they've, they've heard the, they know the, who the liver King is now for, for people who follow me on Instagram, they see that I eat liver just about, just about every day. So I have a couple questions about it. Does, does the, does grass fed grass finish matter as much as I think it does? For liver in for particular liver. or just in general? For liver. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's always optimal to, to, to do that if you can. And especially with more affordable cuts of meat like liver, the difference in price is not going to be as broad as the difference in price between like a grass-fed ribeye or filet mignon and a conventionally raised ribeye and filet mignon. Um, so I, you know, if your budget can handle that, absolutely do that. Um, I would actually argue though, that if you have to make a cut somewhere that, you know, I would prioritize grass fed fattier cuts of meat. And also if you eat dairy products, grass fed and pasture raised dairy, because one of the misconceptions about liver is that toxins are stored in the liver. That's not actually true. They're stored in fat tissue. Uh, they are processed by the liver, but they end up in the fat tissue. So if you're eating like oxtail, brisket, chuck roast, and those fattier cuts of meat more regularly, and then you're, or you're eating butter or cream or things like that, 
eating, you know, choosing pasture raised sources of those fattier animal products is more important, in my opinion, than doing that with liver. Today's episode is brought to you by Anna Lemma. Everybody knows that we're 70% water in body mass. Most people don't know that we're 99% water on a molecular level. And that's why the quality, the composition, and the shape of the water that we drink is tremendously influential in our lives. Analemma regenerates, revitalizes, and rejuvenates our body and minds on a cellular level. The water that you drink out of the tap or out of a, a plastic bottle, the molecules are chaotic and they move in an irregular manner. And through a simple, simple process, Analema radically changes the state of the water by rearranging those H2O molecules into a liquid crystalline structure. It's super easy. This cool wand, all you do is swirl it in your water and it brings coherence and structure back to this water. You may be familiar with some of the other water structuring devices. This is cheaper, this is more effective, and it's got great science to support it. If you go back to episode 402, you'll hear the episode where I interview Mario Branovich, who is the CEO of Analema Water. They've got a special offer just for you. You might as well use this and enhance the water quality that you have. Go to coherent-water.com and use the code OPP for 10% off. I have already gotten responses from people who have purchased this product and they can tell, they feel that the water actually quenches their thirst. They feel more energized and sharp of mind. That's coherent-water.com and use the code OPP. Hmm, that's really helpful. I, I, I remember not too long ago, I, and I, I, I buy, I know my butcher, he's, you know, he's in central part of Washington state where I live. And, um, I'm, I'm about to re up on an eighth of a cow and, and I'm going to get bones and liver from him. Um, but the, um, oh, I was so busy boasting. I forgot what my response was there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I remember the last the, recently I just, I was at a friend's house and they were cooking steaks and I've only been eating grass fed for years and years. That's what we eat at my house and I feed my kids. And I had just had like a typical like Safeway ribeye and it was a big one. And immediately I got a headache and a stiff neck and it was un and it was like, Oh, what, what is that? That I just, what I, what I just had, maybe I'm overreacting, but I, but I, the suspicion that I had was that this big fatty piece of meat, this big ribeye, Something in that fat that those toxins in in the fat uh, screwed with me. I was it was noticeable. I almost felt like I was losing it because it was like, did I? Why am I reacting this way? And then I realized that it was a Safeway cut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some real differences. Um, they may be a little bit. They may be less than people believe, actually. Which is that was a kind of um, a surprise for me because I'm I'm a person that you know, I choose grass-fed pastured meat as well for a variety of reasons. And I think there are many different reasons to choose that. You know, one is environmental. Um, another is social, like uh, supporting farmers that are, you know, th that kind of meat generally comes from small uh, family farm operations. They tend to have a better impact on local communities than, than the large agribusiness, you know, factory farms. Um, and then when, when you get to nutritional value, um, I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that in, in many cases, even conventionally raised cows are grass fed for a lot of their life. And then they're just, they're finished with grain in a feedlot, uh, before they're slaughtered. And so 
the nutritional differences aren't quite as big as you would think, but they are, there are some significant ones. Uh, the fatty acid profile can differ in some cases, vitamin and mineral content content can differ, uh, you know, uh, hormones, antibiotics. I think antibiotic residue is probably one of the biggest issues and biggest concerns that I have, I would have of eating that kind of meat. Um, so, you know, the way I look at it is if you, if you kind of zoom out and look at the whole picture, there's a lot of different reasons to choose pasture raised meat. But if someone, you know, I, 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 I think if someone can't do that for budget reasons, I'm hesitant to, you know, for them to remove meat entirely from their diet because it's so nutrient dense and it's a source of so many nutrients and, and very bioavailable source of nutrients, which we can get into because I think that's a really important factor that most people don't understand, particularly people who are following plant-based diets is that the nutrients that are listed on paper or on label in terms of like, oh, you, you know, this serving size has this many milligrams of calcium or any other nutrient, you do not absorb 100% of those nutrients. And the amount you absorb varies dramatically uh, based on the type of food that you're eating. And animal foods are a very bioavailable, absorbable source of, of many essential nutrients. And so I, I just hesitate to, um, you know, like with my patients, if, if they were on a really tight budget, I would say, look, if you can, you know, buy pasture raised, that's great. If you can't, you know, I'd, I, I don't think that's a reason to take meat out of your diet entirely. Yeah. Well, especially when, even if you can go to the local co-op and you can get, you know, a handful, say 12 ounces of, of liver, you know, that they may not even have in the case there. You maybe have to ask them and say, Hey, Ed, you have any liver back there? And it's super cheap, you know, five, six bucks for 12 ounces of, of, you know, the most nutrient dense food on the planet is a pretty good deal. Certainly more affordable than a dozen oysters, you know, um, that you got to take home and shuck. Um, yeah. I have so many questions, Chris. So I, I will, I'm just going to keep rolling. So how serious when we look at nutrient deficiency, and I know that that's means different things for different people, but, but how, what is nutrient deficiency? Do you, in your estimation, like a top three driver of chronic disease and early death? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's the, elephant in the room at this point and it's it's such a huge pro problem and we're only really seeing the tip of the iceberg um and what you know i gave you an example with magnesium of why that is where you just see you look at the sort of rda and you say oh okay well even then most people still aren't meeting the rda but the reality is when you look deeper the rda is 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 way out of date and if we use the updated numbers, people would be dramatically deficient. And that's not just true for magnesium. You can look at lots of different nutrients and see a similar story. So I think, you know, in the classic metaphor, we're seeing the very tip of the iceberg in terms of this problem. And when you start to dig into the scientific literature and the statistics and, and really understand it, it's, it's a very large iceberg that is uh, sinking ships in a big way. And the crazy thing about it is that it's pretty low hanging fruit, like it's a solvable problem. And 
that's not, you can't say that about all of the other predicaments that we're dealing with, like a growing toxic burden, you know, Mm. like that's a big challenge, but it's not one that's easily solved. We actually can influence our nutrient intake, um, you know, to greater or lesser degrees. Well, it kind of begs the question, right? How do we know if we are nutrient depleted? Yeah, that is a, uh, that's a really hard question to answer actually. Um, I wish as a clinician that there was just one test that I could run that would cover all of the crucial nutrients and give, give me, you know, like a draw some blood and do that and get the results back in two or three days. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. Uh, different nutrients are found in different places in the body. Going back to magnesium as the, as an example, 99.5% of magnesium is stored inside of the tissues. So uh, if you measure it in the serum, in the blood, you're only measuring one half of 1% of what's in the body at any given time. And yes, serum levels do correlate with tissue levels, but not perfectly. And so, you know, there, there was, uh, if you want to really get an accurate read on magnesium status, you have to do a buccal swab, which is like, you know, do, taking a swab inside your cheek it's like a $200 test. That's just Mm. for one nutrient, right? And then, you know, calcium, there's, there's really no way to accurately measure calcium because calcium is so has to be maintained within such a narrow range in the blood. If it goes too high, we die. If it goes too low, we die. So what the body does, if we don't, if we're not eating enough calcium in the diet, it will pull calcium out of the bones in order to maintain that very narrow range in the blood, which is of course why, you know, low calcium intake leads to osteoporosis because mm-hmm. the body's busy pulling it out of the bones just to maintain serum calcium in that very narrow range. And, you know, iodine, you can measure, if you do a 24 hour urine test, that measures your most recent intake of iodine over the past 24 hours, but it doesn't tell you anything about long-term iodine status, mm-hmm. uh, which you can, approximate by doing a hair sample. So you're getting an idea of the complexity of this. And that's why we have to rely on statistics. We have to rely on what we know about the nutrient densities of foods. Um, And it, it, you know, you can basically kind of assess the diet. You can do like a three day food intake with something like chronometer and you can get a general idea of what your nutrient intake is through food, but that will only be using the RDAs and the basic levels that have been established. So you need a little bit of, uh, you know, knowledge or expertise to be able to interpret those numbers. Hmm. So that's a big problem. Um, But if you look at statistics from the Linus Pauling Institute, you know, it's 100% of Americans don't get enough potassium, 94% vitamin D, 92% choline, 89% vitamin E, and it just goes on and on down the list. So, you know, I think the way to put this is you can basically assume (laughs) that you're nutrient deficient unless you are paying, uh, you know, you're extremely vigilant about this. You're paying a ton of attention to what you eat, you're making sure you're getting all of the different nutrients that you need. And even then it's still a challenge because of factors like um, declining soil quality, which we can come back to, you mentioned that earlier. Um, 
a growing toxic burden. So toxins like uh, lead, mercury, arsenic, cadmium, all those heavy metals, and then glyphosate. There are lots of studies that show that these toxins bind to nutrients and then we can't absorb those nutrients. Mm. Or, you know, in some cases you could put it the other way around, nutrients bind to those toxins and we, we can't absorb or utilize the nutrients in those cases. Then chronic disease. Um, chronic disease affects nutrient status in two ways. First, it increases the demand for nutrients. It makes sense, right? If your body's under stress, it's going to need more nutrition to deal with that. And number two, many chronic diseases decrease the absorption of nutrients. So a good example is obesity. People with obesity and diabetes, they will produce less vitamin D in response to the same amount of sunlight than someone who's lean and has normal blood sugar. I did not know that. Yeah. So, you know, a, a person who's lean might be, you know, produce three, four, even five times the amount of vitamin D in response to that given amount of sun exposure. And likewise, uh, people with obesity and metabolic issues will absorb less vitamin D from food or supplements. And this explains why in many cases, they will need to take five or even 10,000 IU of vitamin D to maintain an adequate serum level. Whereas someone who's lean with a normal metabolic function might need to take 2000 IU mm. to maintain that same blood level. So because of those factors and many more, you know, another is industrialization of food system. The average carrot now travels 1800 miles before we eat it. I'm sure people have heard this statistic. Why does that matter from a nutrient density perspective? Well, as soon as a, as a plant is harvested, it immediately starts losing nutritional value. So if the carrot has been in a warehouse after it was harvested, then in a truck for 1800 miles, and then in the back of the grocery store, and then you, you buy it, and then it comes back to your house and sits in your fridge for two or three days, by the time you eat that carrot, it has only a fraction of the nutritional wow. value that it would have had when you took it out of the ground. So mm. because of all those factors, even people who are doing the right things and following healthy diet are still at pretty high risk of nutrient deficiency. And it makes me sad to say that because <laughs> I want it to be easy. I want people to feel good at just like eat a healthy diet and set and forget and that's it. Unfortunately, that's not the world we live in anymore. Today's episode is brought to you by BioPro Plus. I love this stuff. It has made a major change in my life, in my metabolism, in my mood, in my ability to put on lean muscle mass and feel as powerful as I want to feel. BioPro Plus is the faster, easier, and safer non-synthetic alternative to painful, expensive, and invasive anti-aging and hormone treatments. Before you do TRT, before you start taking a bunch of herbs that may not make you feel the way that you want to feel, you should try this. You can go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. You know, you know that a sponsor is a hit when people who have purchased it reach out to me and say, holy cow, Sean, I tried this and it's amazing. It's blowing my mind. It makes me better at everything that I do. I love having sponsors like this that really make a difference in people's lives. And this product is, it's absolutely incredible. It's growth factors and amino acids that will help you improve your hormones, become better at everything that you want to do. So go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. 
Well, it, 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 it pays more credence to shopping at farmer's markets and knowing, knowing your, your beef guy or gal, you know, eating, growing, oh, growing your own food in your, you know, in your yard and, and picking it out of the earth and eating it an hour later, you know, that, that it's, it, it does take a little bit of work. It, you know, relatively more expensive to buy, you know, a bundle of chard seasonally, at a farmer's market, but if it's a, you know, if, if, if it's 10 times more nutrient dense than, you know, the, the, a, a similar bunch that you bought at a grocery store, then, you know, you got to think about what the long-term effects are of not getting those nutrients. Like, do you want to pay a little more now, allocate more of your money, more of your budget to eating high quality foods and supplements and vitamins, which I want to get into next? Uh, or do you want to continue to, overfeed and undernourish yourself for the next 30 years and your children and develop, you know, chronic diseases and autoimmune issues and, you know, deplete your, your innate immune system. And yeah, yeah. It's tough because, you know, I I look for, I look for solutions that are applicable to everybody, you know, in in a platform like inside tracker, which takes your blood and then gives you, you know, gives you some, gives you some idea of what your, where your blood is the funny part and the, and the, you know, the criticism of, of inside tracker. And I I think it's a great platform is it's like the same nutritional advice for me as they give to everybody else. It's like, Oh, well, your minerals are seem to be low. You should eat, you know, legumes and leafy greens and, and pumpkin seeds. And it kind of says that for everybody. So, yeah, I mean, let's just assume dear listener that you are nutrient depleted, damn it. And, and it's time to take it seriously because, uh, the, there are, it, it, it's becoming increasingly important for you to have the nutrients that you need. And of course, Chris agrees with me begrudgingly. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I like, I love inside tracker too. And I think it's really useful. Um, but I, I think you raise a really good point and this is the good news. I think this is the good news when, when all the recommendation, when you, when you do all this kind of testing and all the recommendations lead to the same, you know, are the same as a result, that's actually I think encouraging because it means that if you do those things, you're going to make a lot of other things better, right? Mm. Like if, if you, if you eat a nutrient dense whole foods diet, you're going to support your gut microbiome. You're going to build muscle. You're going to, uh, you know, improve your longevity. You're going to reduce your risk of chronic disease. That's why those recommendations are often so similar because they, you know, eating enough nutrients is the rising tide that lifts all boats, basically. Um, you know, doc, Dr. Uh, Bruce Ames, who's one of my favorite researchers, he's, he's, a, he's at the end of his career now, but he's a molecular biologist at UC Berkeley, and he's made huge contributions to um, this field of uh, understanding the impacts of nutrients on health. And he... Uh, came up with a theory that he calls triage theory and it's got a lot of support now um, in the scientific literature and amongst other uh, molecular biologists nutritionists etc and it it basically uh, holds that all proteins in the body can be classified in two categories one is survival proteins and two is longevity proteins Mm. and the survival proteins as the name suggests are just the proteins that we need for immediate short-term survival Longevity proteins, the ones that we need, again, as the name suggests, for living a long, healthy life, avoiding chronic disease, all the things that, you know, that we really care about. 
Now, here's the thing. Those, the, the, the enzymes, those proteins, they compete for the same nutrients. So if you have a shortage of a particular nutrient, the body will always, always prioritize the survival proteins because that's just the evolutionary imperative, right? Is for us to survive. Like if the body feels like we're threatened in the immediate term, it doesn't care about what's happening 10 years down the line. It's gonna, get, it's gonna shunt those nutrients to those survival proteins every time. And that's the right decision, really. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, it can buy us a little bit more time. Uh, make it through the day. Survival proteins, right? Make it through the day. So, the, but the consequences of that are profound because it means that you can have enough to fuel your survival proteins and make it through the day, like you said, and not die of scurvy or rickets or beriberi or pellagra, but you're not going to have enough for those vital long-term processes like keeping cancer at bay, you know, preventing a chronic disease, not getting dementia or Alzheimer's as you get older, supporting your muscle tissue so you don't develop sarcopenia and have a bad fall and die in the hospital, you know, all the things that really make a difference in terms of longevity. So what Dr. Ames has argued is that the, um, the amount of nutrients we need to satisfy both the survival needs and the longevity needs is significantly higher than the RDA in most cases. And that's why paying attention to nutrient status is so important. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, there, the, the, the bar is getting lower and lower for, for health, you know, across the board and and, and the RDA is just a really great example of that. And so, and, and, and the listeners of this podcast, myself, yourself, we want to thrive. We don't want to just survive. We want to thrive. Like I, I, I want to live a busy, active lifestyle. I want to be sharp. I want to have fun. I want to have a good attitude and sleep well and have, you know, uh, you know, and so you're going to need more of everything. You're going to need a little bit of more of this and a little bit more of that. Before we dive into um, vitamins and supplements, uh, maybe give us a couple of ideas of, of telltale signs, maybe physical symptoms or, or, uh, that, that will, that are almost always tracing back to nutrient deficiencies. Yeah, this is a tough question. <laughs> it's another <laughs> one of those, just like you asked before, like, how do you know if you're nutrient deficient? Yeah. And, and this is another, a reason why I think it's so often un underdiagnosed and misdiagnosed is that the symptoms are nonspecific, which means they could be related to any number of things. Uh, there are some specific symptoms in medicine uh, that really like, uh, you know, would, would point you in a certain direction in terms of diagnosis, right? Like uh, somebody who has extremely pale skin, pale nail beds, um, extreme fatigue, you know, that, that might point you to anemia iron, and, and iron deficiency anemia. Um, in other cases, if someone is severely iodine deficient, they might have a goiter, which is a big swelling of the thyroid gland. And that, that's, a, that's a pretty specific symptom, right? Mm -hmm. that, that you're not gonna miss. But in many cases, the symptoms of nutrient deficiency are nonspecific. They're things like fatigue, disrupted sleep, skin issues, um, hormone imbalance, uh, lack of mental clarity, brain fog, difficulty concentrating or focusing, uh, blood sugar abnormalities, cholesterol or lipid problems, um, 
these are things that the vast majority of Americans suffer from. And so it's not easy to say, oh, I have those symptoms, therefore I'm nutrient deficient. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, if we turn that around, like I said before, most people are nutrient deficient. Yeah. And these are the symptoms of nutrient deficiency. And so if somebody is, is out there listening to this and they just kind of, we call it FLC, feel like crap. <laughs> they, they, they might not have a chronic disease. They might not have a serious problem like dementia or Alzheimer's uh, or type two diabetes or something like that, but they struggle to get through the day. They have energy crashes in the afternoon. Their sleep is disrupted. Their digestion is messed up. They maybe have you know, low sex drive, hormone issues, like these, pro these are symptoms are so common that I think people have begun to believe that they're normal. Hmm. And there's a really big yeah. difference between what's common and what's normal. It is not normal to feel the way that I just described, but is extremely common. And, you know, I'm at the point in my career where I'm, I've over the last few years was, was, have been thinking like, what is a contribution that I could make that would a simple thing that people could do that would almost universally improve health, quality of life, reduce the risk of chronic disease, you know, lower that burden of chronic disease. And it's in pe most people's power to do. And I believe that maximizing nutrient intake is the answer to that question. It's, mm -hmm. it's the simple, yet extremely powerful pleiotropic intervention. And by that, I mean, I said the rising tide that lifts all boats is the thing that makes everything else better. And, you know, that's why I'm beating this drum because I, I genuinely believe that that's the, you know, probably the single most important step that most of us can take to improve our health. I just, uh, I just made a mental note of the term plyometric. <laughs> Pliotropic. 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 Pliometric. I, I'm looking exercise. for a better, um, less geeky term. If you can help, <laughs> or anyone listening can help. Um, but it's it's a it's a really important term to understand because you know there are certain interventions that you do that are very specific. You know, you take a drug for one very specific purpose, or you yeah. do something else for one very specific purpose. The pleiotropic interventions are the ones that are, I think, most powerful because they do, they make everything better. Exercise is a perfect example, right? Most people don't just exercise for one reason. Sure. Some people might, if they're like super motivated to lose weight or make their body look better. And that's the only reason they're doing it. But even if that's the case, even if that's the starting motivation, once they start to exercise, they're going to see a better mood. They're going to see more energy. They're going to see better sleep. They, all the things it's, it's like the opposite of drugs, right? Most drugs, they treat one problem, but they cause several other problems yeah. and they have lots of negative side effects. Pleiotropic interventions like exercise and maximizing your nutrient status are the opposite. They have positive side effects that you weren't even expecting hmm. and they cause this kind of upward spiral where when you do them, everything else gets better instead of everything else getting worse. Yeah, right. So obviously this, this dovetails into vitamins and supplements, right? I mean, people, you're, you, A, we know now 
you know, Chris has just told you and explained why and how you're nutrient deficient and, and as, and as hard as you try to eat local or eat of eat for the rainbow and get lots of spleen in your diet and goat, you know, like you're probably deficient in a lot of different ways that you may not even be thinking about. And I think that a lot of people are skeptical of, of the vitamin industry and the supplement industry, you know, proprietary blends or fillers or, you know, do I take a multivitamin is centrum, you know, is a centrum multivitamin, the, the right thing for me. And people just don't know where to start. Yeah. What you got a thought already. What is that? Yeah. Well, it's overwhelming for sure. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, I will tell you straight out that I wish we didn't have to take supplements. I'm not very good at taking supplements, even though I'm a clinician and prescribed them for years. I wish we lived in a world where we could just eat nutrient dense whole foods and call it a day. And we didn't have to take any supplements and act to be honest for, I think for a few years early in my career, I was in a kind of denial because I had this idealistic view that that's how it should be. And I was letting that get in the way of accepting that that's not the world that we live in anymore. Um, maybe it was for our ancestors. You know, we didn't talk much about decline of soil quality, but just to give you a quick memorable example, uh, there's one study that showed that we'd have to eat eight oranges today to get the same level of nutrition that our grandparents got from a single orange. And that that's just insane. That's two generations. So, you know, imagine what the change has, has been over a longer period of time. So, you know, it took me a few years actually, Sean, to get to the point where I was like, okay, I, I see that I have this sort of ideal version of reality that I would like to be true. And I, but I can no longer ignore what I'm seeing in my clinic where almost every patient that comes in, even one people who are who are doing the right things and following a healthy diet are still nutrient deficient and often several deficiencies. I'm, I'm, I'm reading studies, you know, every week that, that are, are, you know, I'm learning the, how, how, how common this problem is. I'm learning about Dr. Ames's research. Uh, I'm learning like about those issues with the RDA, like I mentioned with magnesium. I, I, I just can't, at some point I'm, I, I'm like, I can't ignore this anymore. Mm -hmm. And I gotta wake up and, and basically face reality and realize that today in this day and age, if we want to optimize our nutrient status, almost all of us are gonna have to supplement to some degree to do that. So then I know that people are thinking, well, what's best for me? Cause right. My deficiencies are probably different than my wife's or my friends or somebody who lives in a warmer climate than I do in the, you know, Pacific Northwest. And, and I think that for the fuller, you know, the biohacking optimizers there, they want to take what's specifically directed for them. That's going to help them optimize. And the people that are, you know, on the other side of the spectrum are like, I, I, I don't know, I'll take whatever seems to be of high quality. That's moderately priced. So what, what types of, of supplements and vitamins at what frequency, um, do you, do you usually suggest, suggest to people? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, a, good, a really insightful question. And I think a good way to frame this part of the discussion, because yes, uh, for people who have, <coughs> excuse me, access to resource financial resources, they can spend hundreds or even thousands of dollars on micronutrient testing they can see a functional medicine provider and get that kind of guidance. 
Um, they, you know, they can wear, uh, you know, tracking devices and uh, CGM from levels and, you know, do all the things great, you know, knock yourself out. I think it's awesome to have that, that kind of data and it will be really inform your treatment plan and make it highly specific and highly individual. But you and I both know, Sean, that that's, we're talking about 0.0001% of the population that can do that because none of that's covered by insurance. And even if it was, you go and ask your primary care doctor to help you out with that, it's just gonna be like, what? (laughs) You know, I didn't learn about any of this stuff in medical school, I cannot help you with that. Um, So again, going back to like the way I've been thinking about it is, how can I, you know, make a recommendation that's gonna work for 80 to 90% of people without getting them in trouble? Because, This is where I tell you that nutrients are not all just benign at any amount. And, you know, you can cause problems by overdosing on certain nutrients. And so, you know, otherwise it'd just be like, woohoo, take, let's just take, you know, <laughs> as much as we can of all this stuff and we'll get even better results the, the more we take. No, that's not actually the best approach. Um, nutrients like calcium, when you take too much can cause serious problems. It can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease and kidney stones uh, and, and other issues. You know, I, too much iron can literally rust our organs. And there, there's a, a disease called hemochromatosis uh, that some people just genetically have where it causes aggressive iron storage and that can be fatal if it's not diagnosed properly. So, you know, there are real consequences to overconsuming some of these nutrients. So the way I was looking at it, um, when I formulated my the daily stack that I have Adapt Naturals Core Plus, which is like what you know, we know there's 40 micronutrients that we need to function properly. Um, how can I formulate something that will get people those nutrients that they need without then going overboard on nutrients like calcium and iron and iodine? Uh, that can cause problems when you take too much. And so, you know, that's when I, when I surveyed what was available in the marketplace, that, those were my biggest concerns. You had a lot of products that just don't even contain enough of the nutrients to move the needle. So people are buying them. They might get some benefit, but they're not getting anywhere near what they need to get to the optimal level. They're just getting to the RDA, right? So that was problem number one. Problem number two is the form of the nutrients that a lot of these cheaper products contain. And this goes back to bioavailability that we were talking about before. So uh, you've probably are aware of the distinction between natural folates and and folic acid. So folic acid is a synthetic form of vitamin B9. And, uh, you know, the problem with it is that some people a not a not insignificant number of people can't metabolize it properly and then that leads to an issue where there's unmetabolized folic acid floating around in the blood and there are some studies that show that that can increase the risk of cancer so if you're taking like a cheap multivitamin you look on the label and it says folic acid on it that may be fine for you but it may not be (laughs) the problem is that most people have no idea uh what cat you know what bucket they fall into And so using natural folates in a supplement will cost a little bit more, but it will ensure that everybody who takes that supplement is able to actually absorb and utilize 
that fully. Um, and, and, you know, the same is true for many other different types of nutrients. Vitamin B6, we can use P5P, which is the, the active form. Riboflavin, which is B2, we can use R5P, which is the active form. B12, we can use methylcobalamin instead of cyanocobalamin, which is a more active form. And you can go on down the line with all the vitamins and minerals and make sure that you're taking a product that has all of those active, highly absorbable forms, because otherwise you're just creating expensive urine. Mm. Yeah. Well, so t- tell us, tell us about, about the, maybe go back and explain what the, what that product is and where to find it. I mean, because it, of, of, of all the people who are focused on this topic of nutrient deficiency, you, you and your track record and your history and the way that you present material is, 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 is stand up and trustworthy. So please tell us where we can find this product. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and, and this, like I said, is really my life's work at this point. Like this yeah. is, this is what I want, would like to be the contribution that I make. If there's one thing that I'm remembered for, Chris Cresser died. He helped a lot of people, uh, you know, correct their nutrient deficiency and improve their health. Because again, it, it's low hanging fruit. It's something we can all do. Um, and, and that's how I approach the formulation, you know, the, the development of this product. Um, so it's a daily stack of five, actually five separate products. Um, one is a multivitamin, but it's not just a normal multivitamin. It's actually uh, a multivitamin, multimineral, and a phytonutrient blend. So it's almost like taking a multi and a reds and greens powder all in one. So mm. it's got not only all the essential vitamins and minerals, but it has the bioflavonoids, carotenoids, diallyl sulfides, lignans, beta-glucans, all the, the, the phytoplant nutrients that we know are essential to health at this point. The oranges, all, the, the oranges, the reds, the purples. <laughs> all of it. And they're all, bio, they're all in naturally occurring, bioidentical, highly bioavailable uh, forms. In fact, all of the products are called bioavailable blank because that was so important to me. Um, not surprisingly, we have the second product is an organ blend. So I just explained that, you know, four of the top 10 most nutrient dense foods on that list were organs. So we have all of those. We have liver, heart, kidney, and spleen. And then we also have pancreas because pancreas is, has some really interesting nutrient profile relative to the others. This is a really easy way to benefit from nutrient from organ meats without having to cook or prepare them, which, you know, the fact is most people just won't do. I found in my, yeah. in my career, the third product is a mushroom blend. So I was long ago, I got, I was trained in, in traditional Chinese medicine and mushrooms have been a, were a big part of that system for 5,000 years. And it's interesting because now we're, starting to understand why from a modern research perspective. And I'm sure most of your listeners now have heard of the benefits of mushrooms like reishi and chaga and lion's mane, turkey tail. They're incredible uh, from a nutrient density perspective, uh, but they also are anti-inflammatory, antioxidants. They promote cognitive function and health. They regulate mood. They lower cholesterol. They have all of these incredible benefits and they're food-based uh, supplement. So as you can see it so far, like all everything I'm talking about, they're all 
superfoods basically mm. that are that we've been able to condense and put into a capsule form so that you don't have to make a concoction of, of reishi mushroom tea, which is really mm. what you have to do otherwise if you want to benefit from it because they're not good to eat. They're really bitter and tough. Yeah, so it's it's tricky to prepare all the different mushrooms. Some require alcohol extraction, some require water extraction, some you can eat and they're delicious and, and great. And I highly recommend that you learn how to do that, incorporate them into your foods. But again, with like with the organs, I wanted to give people a really easy way to get all the benefits of all the different types of mushrooms without having to navigate that themselves. Um, the fourth product is one that probably most people aren't aware of, and even people who are really savvy. I'm curious if you've heard of these. Um, so it's a unique form of vitamin E called tocotrienol. So these are oh. delta and gamma tocotrienols. Have you heard of them? No, I haven't. Yeah. So. Um, 89% of Americans don't get enough vitamin E, yet the problem is that supplementing with the most common form of vitamin E, which is alpha tocopherol, not only doesn't improve health over the long term, it can actually increase the risk of cancer and heart disease. Oops, you know, that, that's like a, one of those bad situations I was talking about before with taking too much calcium or iron. And the good news is that not that long ago, like in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, a, 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 a new form of vitamin E was discovered called tocotrienols. And uh, tocotrienols do not have the long-term risks of vitamin, of, of, alpha, of tocopherols. And they actually have even better benefits. They're 40 to 50 times more potent as antioxidants mm. than tocopherols. They can improve lipid profiles, promote cellular health, support, support healthy blood sugar, improve bone health, reduce inflammation. Uh, vitamin E is the most important antioxidant in the brain. So there's some real significant cognitive health benefits. Um, it, it's, it's probably the natural, one, one of the natural compounds that I'm most excited about in my 15 year career along with mushrooms. So what, what, um, let me, where, where would, where do people typically get nutritional forms of, of vitamin well, E? That's so in vitamin E nutritional forms, nuts and seeds are a, a, a big one. Um, grains, actually vegetable oils, believe it or not. That's one, oh, of, the boo. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the few, like if there are any redeeming qualities of vegetable oil, like <laughs> it's, they, they do have some vitamin E. So, but, but generally just eating a mixed diet, you'll get enough, you'll, you'll get some level of tocopherols, but, but not enough as the statistics clearly indicate 89% of Americans not getting enough. Mm. And tocotrienols are, um, amazing but the problem you know one of the problems is there there isn't really a, a a significant dietary source of them um so like palm palm oil will has some tocotrienol rice has some tocotrienol um but they also contain tocopherols and what we know from research is if a food contains both tocopherols and tocotrienols you're not going to get the full benefit of the tocotrienols. Mm. And that's actually true with supplement too. So if you're looking at a tocotrienol supplement, you want to be sure it has 100% tocotrienols or maybe a very small, very low amount, like five milligrams or less of tocopherol. Because if, you, if it has too much tocopherols, it will cancel out the unique benefits of the tocotrienol. So I'm super excited about this. And um, it, it was, you know, 
uh, not easy to include in the bundle because it's it's not you know it's not very well known and um, but it's 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 one that's really important. Mm. And number five, again, not surprising, magnesium. <laughs> and Got so yeah. you know we we established before that most Americans are falling two hundred to three hundred milligrams short a day on magnesium. And so um, BioVail Mag has a chelated form of magnesium, which makes it very well absorbed and way less likely to cause the GI symptoms like loose stools and bloating that a lot of other forms of magnesium cause if you take them in higher doses. So that's it. I mean, the idea is you just take this, you set it and forget it. You can probably let go of a lot of other supplements that you yeah. are taking. So is it one... With it, with this stack, is it one pill per of the five? No, there's unfortunately more capsules than that. So um, that's just the reality of like when you're taking organs and and putting them in capsules, you know, it's a significant volume of of product. We're not isolating the synthetic nutrients from the organ meats and putting them in a capsule. We're actually taking the gra the organs from grass fed animals in New Zealand. We're freezing those. And then we're desiccating them into a powder and putting them in the capsules. So it really is almost like eating the organs, except that you don't taste, taste them or prepare them. Mm -hmm. The same is true with mushrooms. We're taking the mushroom raw ingredients and putting those in a capsule. We're not isolating the nutrients from them. So uh, there's a morning, you know, we recommend that most people take, you know, one uh, group in the, in the morning of, of capsules. So it's about, uh, eight capsules in the morning and eight capsules in the evening. Mm -hmm. So if I could find a way to condense that and make it smaller, I would, but not if it, it involves making it, you know, isolating nutrients synthetically and, and yeah. instead of providing the whole food sources. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a small price to pay and, and I'll go out on a limb and, and I know that people listening to this podcast are no strangers to taking eight, 16, 25, you know, pills, capsules a day. Yeah. Um, uh, and one thing you can do, like we, we, we do recommend for a lot of people, like with the organs, you can, um, if you're cooking some ground beef, for example, you can just sprinkle that organ powder on the ground beef. And in many oh, cases, no. people won't, won't even taste that, especially if they spice, you know, add spices to the ground beef. That is a great idea. I I've been chopping, the raw liver that I get, this is yeah. the third plug for my rancher in this podcast. This is obscene, but I've been <laughs> mincing it into like almost a pate and putting it in the burgers for my kids. And it's like, something's a little, they, they know, you know, nine and six, they're like, well, this doesn't taste, there's something else in here. What is it? No, I just keep it. Just eat it. But the, 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 the sprinkled capsule, that's a really great solution to it. I like that a lot. Yeah. And people um, can do that with the mushrooms too, because yeah. they've already been prepared adequately for absorption and the taste is fairly mild. So yeah, whenever we have someone that's really sensitive to swallowing capsules, that's one of the recommendations we make. Do you, does, does heating up or, or cooking the mushroom capsule, the, the content in the capsules, does it, does it affect it at all? No. And in fact, um, heating is required to actually get the benefit of a lot of the ingredients in the mushrooms, but that's, that's done in the processing. So I'm not saying you, you need to heat mm. the, the capsules, but, um, heat will, will not, I'm saying that heat won't 
uh, negatively impact gotcha. the, uh, the mushrooms um, and, and, and the organs for that matter too, you know, like most, most people who are consuming organs and have consumed them for the majority of evolutionary history are eating them cooked rather than raw. Hmm. I prefer them raw. I like cooked, like the liver and onions thing never really got my juices flowing, but yeah. now I've developed sort of a taste for it. And I, and I do do it liver King style with a little bit of maple syrup on the top, a little bit of like uh sea salt as well. Um, th that's certainly, th that's certainly more advantageous for the other members of my household that don't enjoy this <laughs> smell of cooked liver, you know, every other day. Yeah. So, yes. so let's, let's stick on the, on the beef a little bit. So now that you've given us this idea, you've given us a solution, you've, you know, you've, you've opened a lot of doors and even, you know, introduced a couple of ingredients and also terms that, that I've already forgotten, but uh, what, how do you explain the carnivores that thrive just eating red meat, maybe a little bit of eggs? bacon like once a month like they're i know you've gotten this question before but for people who are absolutely thriving and i haven't seen their blood work but i eat a mostly animal-based diet and i think it's becoming more popular because of the paul saladinos and sean bakers and even the liver, liver king himself but but what do you say to those how do you explain the, the thriving that's happening for the people who are who are eating either all carnivore or or mostly animal based yeah it's a great question and uh the truthful answer is i'm not sure you know mm. i think there's a lot we don't understand still about these questions and i think it's a really good area of study and one that we should continue to pursue um, there are a few different ways to answer this question. So the, the first thing I'll say is that as a clinician who's been treating patients for 15 years, I pay attention to people's responses. Like, I, you know, you, you'll hear a kind of derogatory, like N equals one. Uh, oh, you know, if one person has an experience, it doesn't really matter. We need to look at scientific research. And, and, and yeah, we do need to look at scientific research. But as a clinician, if somebody has an amazing response to something, I'm going to get curious about that and pay attention to it. I'm not just going to dismiss it as like a one-off. Um, and I have seen patients, uh, particularly people with pretty severe autoimmune disease or, you know, hyper-reactive immune responses, like they can't tolerate any kind, you know, they can eat like five or six different foods or they have mold issue or something like that. I've seen those people in, in some cases respond really, really well to a carnivore type of diet. And I would never judge or, or begrudge somebody who, you know, from following something that is so clearly improving their quality of life and making them feel better. And that's, you know, that's just awesome. Like more power to you. Having said that, I've seen the other side of that coin too. I've seen people whose health has been pretty severely damaged by following uh, exclusively car car carnivore mm -hmm. diet. And um, I've also still have concerns about the long-term impacts of that approach. Um, there are many examples just in life in general and, and medicine and nutrition in particular of short-term interventions that are very beneficial to health that when extended over the long term would be harmful and even fatal. So the best example of this is fasting. 
fasting is known in medicine as the cure for all disease because it is so remarkably effective in the short term. But I think we all know what would happen if we carry on fasting for too long. <laughs> yeah. it, it's also the cure for life in that <laughs> circumstance, right? Um, so, so that's maybe a kind of crude example, but it's a, it's a relevant one. You know, there's a lot of benefits that happen from short-term fasting that if you extend that too far, will take you in the other direction. Um, I think my, my, my guess, and again, I don't know that this is true and we need more research, but my guess is that carnivore diet functions almost like a lot. It's a way of getting similar benefits that you would get from fasting, but for an extended period of time. Mm. And the reason I say that is that meat and animal products in general tend to be absorbed pretty high up in the digestive tract. And I think what's happening in many cases is they're giving the gut a rest and they're, and they are starving any harmful bacteria that, that live in the colon from the, the substrate of food that they need to reproduce. And so in a lot of these cases of autoimmunity, mold illness, all of these, you know, more severe kind of issues, people have very disrupted gut microbiota for any number of reasons. And carnivore is something that allows them to get really high level of most nutrients, you know, obviously vitamin C and phytonutrients are not included in that, but all of the essential nutrients that are most important for short-term health and even long-term health in many cases are very well represented if you're eating beef and organs and shellfish and, you know, what a lot of people recommend. Um, that essentially gets you maybe the benefits of a profound gut reset and, a, and an extended fast, but while continuing to get really good nutrients during that period of time. Mm -hmm. The question that I have is what is the, the longer term? And by that, I mean years, not months. What is the longer term? Or decades, or decades, or right? decades. Yeah, we, we know that many nutrient deficiencies take years or even decades in some cases to develop. And we also know that the phytonutrients like the carotenoids, bioflavonoids, the lignans, the beta-glucans, all these sorts of things, they're not essential in the technical definition of that term. An essential nutrient is one that we cannot produce on our own and that the body absolutely requires for survival and optimal function. Like you can die from iron deficiency. You can't die as far as we know from a carotenoid deficiency or a fiber deficiency. Um, and so in my mind, it's likely that the benefits of those phytonutrients extend over a longer period of time and the consequences of not eating them take much longer to develop and might be reflected in perhaps a higher risk of developing cancer years or decades down the line or a higher risk of developing dementia or Alzheimer's years or decades down the line. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, this is just a theory. I, I would love to see more research here, but when, when I look at examples of um, ancestral populations. I don't think we've ever found a population that has eaten only animal products, nor for that matter, have we found a population that has eaten only plant products. Every mm. population that's ever been studied 
eat some combination of both plant and animal foods. And when you look at it from a biochemical perspective, it makes sense because animal foods are rich in certain nutrients and then plant foods are rich in other nutrients. And if you're trying to maximize nutrient density overall, it's best to combine together. Yeah. So the Inuit and the Maasai don't, they, they get other vegetable matter in their diet as well. They do consume plant foods, uh, the Inuit, not in the winter when it's permafrost, you know, covered by ice, but in the summer they'll eat berries and they'll trade for plant foods. Same with the Maasai. Um, you have a broad variation though, in the proportions sure. depending on geography and access. So you have the Inuit and the Maasai that you mentioned tend to get a substantial portion of their calories from animal foods at most times of the year. But then you have like the Tukacenta in Papua New Guinea who get the vast majority of their calories from plant foods and also the Kitavans in the South Pacific who get the majority of their calories from plant foods. Hmm. So I would say that what the, what the archeological or anthropo anthropological record shows is that all cultures that have ever been discovered and studied eat some, eat a combination of plant and animal foods in some proportion according to their geography and access and maybe cultural norms and traditions. Hmm. You know, the Maasai are a pastoralist cattle herding people and they, their whole entire society and way of life is oriented around the cow. Um, and that's, they drink the blood and, and, and the milk and eat the meat. Um, but, but again, then in the Tukacenta, their whole life revolves around sweet potatoes, <laughs> that, you know, like that, that's really what they're getting the most of. So, so, and I think that that can extend to individuals too. You know, I know people who eat mostly animal foods, but they eat some berries, they eat some dark leafy greens, you know, they'll consume some honey, uh, and, and things like that. And you know, I, I would say that actually fits within the, an, hmm. the ancestral template that I just described. Whereas you might have someone else who is eating mostly plant foods, but maybe they augment that with organ meats, shellfish, and some of the more nutrient dense uh, sources of animal foods so that they make sure they're getting those essential nutrients. Again, I think that can fit into the ancestral template that we've talked yeah. about. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think that research is in this area is going to is going to be really fascinating in in the coming decades. You know, and as and as I watch, you know, as I watch uh, Paul Saladino go from you know nose to tail carnivore to nose to tail carnivore with tons of fruit and honey and butter. Um, you know, Rob Wolf, who I've had on the podcast a number of times, is. Um, you know, mostly carnivore, but also includes some citrus. And I, and, and it's like, this is just what works for me, man. And and he's great at sort of been like, Hey, I'm not going to tell you what to do. This, this could work. You should, you could try it. Um, uh, just a couple more, a couple more questions here. And I, and I appreciate, I appreciate your time. This has been, this has been super interesting. Um, the, the last two questions, one is, a, is about fiber and the other is about, um, biohacking. So, the as i as i look at some of the conventional wisdom um you know platforms um that you know levels <clears throat> you know putting a lot of a lot of focus on on fiber intake um january ai putting a lot of a lot of focus on on fiber intake you know i did a podcast with dr anton from uh, prolon and the 5 day fasting mimicking diet which was 
pretty incredible when I did it. I mean, I lost like 11 pounds. My love handles shrunk a bunch. And, and this is still me, you know, eating, eating most, mostly animal based, mostly carnivore. I would say it's probably 80, 85%. Um, but everybody just keeps harping on fiber. Got to have fiber. It's the one thing that we know that's going to keep you alive the longest. And then I say, well, what about the carnivores that haven't had fiber in five or six years? And there, you know, there are couples in the United States or maybe they're Canadian that have been doing nothing but ribeyes. I don't know if you're familiar with this couple. They're like, I don't remember what city they live in, but they're, they're like, just fatty ribeyes. They've been doing it for like 25 years and they look phenomenal. They're 60 and they look 35. And, and so my brain goes, okay, well then if the research shows that fiber is really important, was that research based on a Western American diet where people's meat consumption was like cheeseburgers and pizza? And, and so I just wanted to get your take on on how, on the importance of fiber and, and how you think about it now and how that may be changed in the last couple of years. Yeah. Another great question we need more research on, but I think the, the way I look at these kinds of questions is I consider three different legs of a stool. So one would be uh, my clinical experience. Again, you know, many people would consider that to be the least rigorous form of evidence, but I don't, I pay attention to it. I don't look at it in isolation and not consider anything else, but I do consider it. I think it is an important piece and it can lead to some interesting hypotheses that can then be tested, et cetera. The second is the archeological and anthropological record, which we were talking about in terms of the ancestral template. And, and third is, you know, modern research that could be observational epidemiology, it could be randomized controlled trials, it could be mechanistic studies that, you know, are designed to help us understand the, the role and function of various nutrients, etc. I think that's that, that gives us the most holistic view in response to questions like this, and, and we can get ourselves in trouble when we only look at one part of that. So. Let's, for example, if we were only to say, wow, look at that couple in Canada, they're amazing. They're, you know, they only ribeyes and that's the end of the story, you know, right? I mean, <laughs> right. I think, I think we all know that that's not sufficient, right? That that's an interesting, that's a, a thing that's like, huh, well, I, that, that, that could lead us to some interesting questions. Like, how is it that they have been able to do that if fiber is so important? And, you know, it, it's a hypothesis generating example, but it's not uh, evidence of sure. anything. Um, so when I look at this question about fiber from all of those different perspectives, I, d I do come up with a belief that it's probably important for most people. Are there situations where people can thrive without fiber? Maybe. Uh, do we understand why that's, that's the case? I don't think so <laughs> at this point. But if I look at, again, the vast, you know, every culture that's ever been identified has eats some combination of plant foods, which almost by definition contain some fibers. Um, then the burden of proof is on people to explain if that was not an important behavior from an evolutionary perspective, why was it not eliminated a long time ago? Because evolution is ruthless and very efficient at eliminating rather than conserving behaviors that don't have an evolutionary value. So. If plant foods are useless, why is it that every, you know, that, that humans and hominids and even before humans have eaten them for so, you know, for, for thousands and thousands of generations? 
Um, then when we look at, at modern research, there are there is a very large body of evidence pointing to fiber being important for the gut microbiota. And now, of course, you can open, in, you look at Newsweek, Time, any newspaper, it's mainstream. Everyone understands the connection between gut health and overall health and longevity. And every year that passes, that connection just gets stronger and stronger. So um, yes, I think that fiber has some, very likely is important, but not all fiber is created equal. Like going back to your question about, should we lump dark leafy greens all together, or these you know categories of food? I had Justin Sonnenberg on my podcast. He's uh, uh, he has a PhD a microbiologist from Stanford, and he's an expert in the role of fiber and its impact on the microbiome. And he's coined a term, which again is right up there with pleiotropic in terms of how it rolls off the tongue, <laughs> but it's uh, microbiota accessible carbohydrates. And okay. I think it, I think it's worth unpacking this because it's an important distinction that he makes, which is that the role of fiber is not to feed us. Right. We don't digest fiber at all. It passes through us. It doesn't give us any nutritional value at whatsoever. When this whole conversation about nutrient deficiency and maximizing nutrients, fiber has zero value for mm -hmm. for for us as a human. What fiber is is like the best nutrient for our bacteria, our, our, our uh, microbiota, you know, microbiome. And the bacteria in our gut can metabolize fiber and transform that into many different compounds that are extremely beneficial for our health. And one of the uh, most uh, familiar, well, I don't know about familiar, but uh, one of the best examples is short chain fatty acids like butyrate that uh, just have a profound beneficial impact on health. So Justin's term microbiota accessible carbohydrate mean, you know, fi fiber is a type of carbohydrate. Technically, that's how we classify it. So a carbohydrate that is accessible to the microbiota is one that will feed that, that it basically provides a substrate or a food source to that, to the, the microbiome. And so we want to emphasize, um, you know, we want to emphasize those types of carbohydrates and fiber that actually feed beneficial bacteria um, preferentially. And that's uh, where that term comes from. So can you give me an example of a microbiota, microbiota accessible carbohydrate? Yeah. So like a soluble fiber is uh, a microbiota accessible carbohydrate and soluble fiber is in a lot of fruits and vegetables, carrots, bananas, apples. Um, they, they tend to be in the flesh of those foods. So like um, the, in an apple, the soluble fiber is going to be in in the flesh of the apple whereas the the peel often will be insoluble fiber and uh insoluble fiber does not have actually the same microbiota accessible carbohydrate benefits that soluble fiber does another one would be resistant starch uh, so folks have probably heard about this it, it tends to form in like 
foods like potatoes or or plantains that have been cooked and cooled or or even white rice that's been cooked and cooled um, and that feed that will feed a different type of bacteria in the colon and then you have um, long chain polysaccharides like uh, FOS or GOS, fructooligosaccharides, galacto-oligosaccharides is, is really the first fiber that we're exposed to because it's in breast milk. Mm. So that should also give us a clue. Anything that is in breast milk is pretty mm. darn important from an evolutionary perspective because cool. again, this is it's not our first rodeo as human beings here. Mm. We've been around for a long time. So if something is in breast milk, it doesn't prove anything, but it does need to generate that question. Okay, why is this in breast milk? This galacto-oligosaccharide, you know, like, so mm. um, th those are some of the main classes of microbiota accessible carbohydrates. And what I would agree with in, in terms of people who are critical of fiber is that you know, taking like huge amounts of Metamucil every day is, <laughs> right. is not the best way to go about meeting your fiber and microbiota accessible carbohydrate needs. The best right. way to do it is to eat a mixed and varied diet. And, you know, if you do that and you're eating nutrient dense whole foods and you're really cutting down on the highly processed and refined foods like flour and seed oil and sugar and stuff that comes in a bag in a box, you'll generally you know, do pretty well with fiber uh, intake. And yeah, I would also, I would just put this in the category of like, there's still some unanswered questions and, and uh, I would, I would really like to see more ongoing research on this instead of just people attacking each other and, you know, per, ad hominem personal attacks and, you know, slinging mud. It's like, let's be humble and admit when we don't actually fully understand something. There's nothing wrong with admitting that. And in fact, it's the precondition to increasing our knowledge about that topic. Yeah. Well, that that's what I love about how you do your thing, Chris, is because it is, it is even-handed, it's reasonable, it's based in context and historical reference and evolution. You know, the, the filtration mechanism of wool, is it in what's in breast milk and why? Like, I've never thought of that before, but yeah, that's really cool. Like, why did we why do why do mothers create these these ingredients or these 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 vitamins are that are that are contained in breast milk? I think that's really fascinating. Um, well, I'm going to skip the biohacking question simply because I'm satisfied. I don't need to go. We don't need to. We don't need to go there. Um, but uh, before I ask the last question, um, which is a fill in the blank question, where can people find you? Where can they follow their work? And where can they learn more about uh, about the the supplements? Great. Yeah. So chriscresser.com is my main website and pretty much everything I do is, 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 is there and, you know, you can find it there. Uh, Revolution Health Radio is my podcast. I've, I've, you know, been doing it for 13, 14 years now. That was, I think one of the OG podcasters. I love it. And it's a great way for, you know, uh, that I like to share and interview people. And then the supplements you can find at adaptnaturals.com your website has so much information on it. If, if, if you're vibing with this and, and you want to learn more, just, just go deep dive, you know, drink a bunch of coffee and just spend a couple hours, look, thumb it through, thumb it through the pages on the website because it's so great. 
Um, so this is the 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 final question, a fill in the blank question, and 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 we'll end it here. And um, this is a fill in the blank, and you can elaborate as much or as little as you as you would like, but please do fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing. Everyone would benefit from knowing how important nutrients are to their health and how easy it is to restore optimal nutrient status with a little bit of attention. Bullseye. Nailed it. Chris Kresser, thank you so much for joining me today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. John, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.